Attention, Tia and Rio listeners. I have big news to share. This episode will be the last to feature Julie McCormick as Tia. It's a bittersweet announcement as Julie has done an amazing job bringing Tia to life, but as you all know, life happens and Julie can no longer continue with the podcast. However, it's with deep gratitude and excitement that I inform you all that Hugh Philpott will be taking on the role of Tia. Hugh is an incredibly talented performer, most recently featured in the latest publication of the American Association of Community Theater, New Play Fest, Winning Plays, Volume 5 of 2022. Hugh played the lead role in MLM is for Murder, or Your Side Hustle is Killing Us, by John Bavosa. Thank you, Hugh. We can't wait for you all to hear them. Trigger warning. This podcast may contain themes of suicide, violence, and drug use. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to Tia and Rio Attempt to Save Themselves and the World. Episode 9, Cities in Dust. Previously on Tia and Rio Attempt to Save Themselves and the World, Tia and Rio have some time to contemplate in jail. Anita reflects back on the first time she and Rio ever met and how they came into their mother-daughter relationship. Rio can't stop stressing over Hugh and everything that transpired, including the confrontation with the man that hit his car, the fact that Hugh has apparently spent time in prison, and now she can't seem to get a hold of him. Meanwhile, Tia wants answers from Kiki, like how long she's been struggling with addiction and why she started using in the first place. As Kiki begins to open up, Hell decides to cut in and give Tia an extremely unsettling vision instantly causing friction between the two best friends and sending Kiki running. Just when Tia's morning couldn't get any weirder, she sees her mother's handwriting in real time scribbling a message right before the book catches fire. Rio tries to keep her singing outbursts to a minimum as she makes the very short drive to Hugh's music and collectibles. What if something happened to Hugh? He's so hot-headed, I hope he didn't give himself a heart attack after the incident. If he's in the hospital, that would explain why he hasn't gotten back to me. Rio continues going over a variety of scenarios until she pulls up to the store's parking lot. She walks around to the front entrance and finds her coworker, the always cheery and hilarious Steve, working the register. Hey, Rio, how's it going? Aren't you off today? Steve asks her between his larger-than-life smile. Steve reminds most people of what a cartoon character would act and look like in real life. He's totally bald, his head shiny to the point where it looks like he waxes it with some kind of gloss. His demeanor, as well as his eyes, remain friendly and calm, even when he's had to deal with the worst of humanity. Customer service jobs can truly test a person's patience and tolerance. When Hugh starts ranting or gets into an argument with someone about the jukebox and how it's not for sale, Steve can ease his way into the argument and diffuse the heat with a quick joke or a sincere pat on the back. His smile is contagious, and it's the most noticeable thing about him. His naturally dark, tan skin only further illuminates the pearly white teeth he never hesitates to flash, his kindness a beacon of light to an often dark world. Hey Steve, it's great to see you. It seems like it's been forever since we worked a shift together. Don't I know it? It almost doesn't feel like work if I don't hear you blasting your 80s tunes. I mean, since I'm here... Rio makes a beeline for the jukebox, and within several seconds, Susie and the Banshees is playing in full surround sound, 
Rio glances over and sees Hugh's office door is closed. Is Hugh here? Rio hollers across the store to Steve. <laughs> now there it is. Believe it or not, he called off today. That's why I'm here. Technically, Darren and I were both supposed to work today since it's a bigger inventory day. But as usual, Darren is a no-call, no-show. Rio finishes for him. The two exchange a smirk before Rio follows up with, Is Hugh all right? I mean, as far as you know? He sounded all right. He was his usual brutish self, so he seemed normal to me. I am surprised he called off, though. That man is married to work. Rio nods and she fidgets with Anita's car keys. Well, I gotta get going. I really need to talk to Hugh, but it was great seeing you, Steve. We need to work together more often. I agree. And you always seem to put Hugh in a good mood, which definitely helps around here. Thanks. That's sweet of you to say. Rio is about to go out the door when Steve stops her. Hey, I almost forgot. There was a message with your name on it. Looks like someone slid it under the door. Steve hands her a small envelope that reads, Rio. He must see the look of dread on her face, because he then says, Is everything okay? Rio, is someone bothering you, like a customer or something? Rio notices her name is written in red sharpie, the exact same red she found on her Simon Le Bon poster. Something like that. She mutters, barely audible. She quickly looks up at Steve and forces a small grin. No need to worry, though. It's all good. Thank you for giving me this. I hope today is uneventful for you. Hey, you just enjoy your day off. Rio exits the store and gives Steve a cordial wave as she heads back to the car. Her hands shaky, she carefully opens the envelope, terrified of what may be inside. She slowly pulls the letter out of the envelope to discover it's a blank sheet of printer paper, and it has one word written on it in red sharpie. In all capital letters, it reads, SOON. Rio's fear doesn't completely diminish, but she suddenly feels angry. She's got enough on her mind right now, and she's in no mood for bullshit. She crumples the note up and tosses it out the window, then feels guilty about littering, so she gets out of the car, picks up the paper, and walks over to a garbage bin not far from Hugh's store. She then drives off, heading to Hugh's house. By Saturday afternoon, Tia's count is now at 18. 18 being the number of times Tia has tried to either call or message Kiki. She's still reeling from the strange waking hell beach nightmare, still regretful of how the big talk went for Kiki, and she certainly can't seem to get the imagery of her mother's handwriting jotting down a message right before her eyes. What's worse is that she has a shift at the laundromat tomorrow, and having to go to work is typically a welcome distraction, hence her near-daily library trips. But with how everything's been going, she doesn't know how much more patience she can possibly muster. Tia tries to call Kiki one more time. When it goes to voicemail, Tia says, Hey, Kiki. Please, where are you? I'm so sorry about what happened this morning. I can explain everything, but please come home. There's something I have to tell you, and honestly, I don't even know how to say it or describe it. But I promise you, my reaction had nothing to do with you or what you told me. You're my best friend. I will always support you. Kiki, 
I'm worried about you. Tia hangs up, then lets out a heavy sigh. Where would she have gone? Tia starts imagining the worst. Like her best friend overdosing or something awful happening to her if she's high and not someplace safe. I have to find her. Tia grabs her satchel and heads out, instinctively walking towards Lake Erie and the Blasco Library. Tia would never look for Kiki in the library, but figures she may be somewhere near the lake. Tia glances at her phone every few minutes, because even with the sound on the loudest volume, she's afraid she'll miss Kiki's call or text. I can't let her down again. There's a worn-out bench not far from where she's currently walking, and she decides to make her way there. Tia and Kiki have spent a lot of time together on this bench, and Tia has fond memories of her and her mom watching the geese that gather around this area and watching the sunset. Nothing compares to an airy sunset. Tia thinks to herself as she arrives at her bench destination and takes a seat, her cell phone in hand. As she gazes at the calm water before her, it occurs to her that Kiki might end up going back to her house and that she wouldn't be there. Shit. Tia sends a message to Kiki that reads, Hey, I'm at our favorite bench in Olive Erie. And concludes the message with the warmest smiley face emoji she can find. Tia watches the water for a while longer before reaching into her satchel and pulling out a book on chemistry. I might as well sharpen up before my big meeting with Matt on Tuesday. Tia does what Tia does best. She studies and reads, occasionally taking notes or jotting down questions in one of her notebooks she always carries on her. She's trying her damnedest not to dwell on where Kiki may be, or the fact that her dead mother may have tried to contact her and that it seems like hell or something evil decided to get in the way. Or maybe it wasn't my mother at all. Maybe it's just whatever the fuck's going on. Messing with me and getting in my head. Between her inner reflections and all the advanced chemistry she's trying to teach herself, Tia loses daylight fast. She checks her phone. Still no sign from Kiki. What if something happened to her? Tia rubs the temples on her forehead. No. Stop thinking the worst. She's just upset and needs some time and space. I can respect that. Holy shit, is it already six? Tia gathers her notebooks and the chemistry books she's been studying up on and packs them all away in her satchel. She decides to take a few deep breaths, becoming better at remaining in the present and enjoying the beautiful lake right in front of her. Her eyes catch something peculiar, several feet away. Tia inches closer to this very out-of-place thing? That's the only word that comes to mind. As she gets within two feet of it, she can feel her heartbeat quicken. In lightning speed, she whips the chemistry book back out of her satchel and aggressively flips around until she lands on a page about uranium. Very carefully, Tia tiptoes a few more paces in order to get a real-time comparison. Hmm, it kind of looks like uranium. But why is it so bright, so green? Now that Tia is an arm's length away, she sees it resembles the size and shape of an orb. An orb that looks like it could glow in the dark. An orb with a radioactive green appearance. Tia digs around in her satchel once more and pulls out a very old and badly beaten lunch pail. She has no idea what this incredible thing is before her, but she knows she can't just leave it. If it's toxic, she wouldn't want any animals or kids to accidentally get hurt. Wishing she had gloves, but it's June, so nope. And knowing she's taking an insane risk, 
Tia puts her hands under her shirt so her bare skin will not touch whatever this is and proceeds to scoop it up and plop it into the lunch pail. Jumping up in fear that she may have just given herself chemical burns, she quickly settles down when she realizes that the glowing orb did not transfer anything, making this discovery all the more strange. There could still be side effects I'm not aware of yet. I have to find a better way to store this once I get home. Tia's walk back to her house is a very slow and deliberate one, seeing as she's horrified of dropping this orb, and she doesn't want to place it in her satchel with her library books and notebooks. Just because it didn't transfer once doesn't mean it won't. When she's almost home, she realizes this would be a perfect specimen to show Matt when they meet up on Tuesday. Maybe he'll know what this is. Or maybe this is something directly related to his unusual findings in Aerie. Whatever it is, I have to preserve it. Maybe this is something new altogether. Tia is giddy as she wastes no time finding one of her mother's old coolers. It's not the most ideal container, but it's the closest thing she has with a secure lid, and depending on whether this orb is radioactive or not, this old cooler is the best shot she has in limiting her exposure until she can show Matt. Tia gingerly places her old lunch pail into the cooler, her eyes fixated on the still-glowing orb inside. Is it bad to be looking directly at it? What is it? I should probably call Matt. Maybe this can't wait until Tuesday. She very carefully closes the cooler's lid, her heart racing. She pulls out her phone and is about to call Matt when she realizes she should tell Kiki she's back home. Hey Kiki, just wanted to let you know I'm home. I miss you. Please, even if you don't want to see me, can you let me know you're okay? Tia types out, then sends. Tia pulls up Matt's number. She's nervous and excited to tell him all about this uh, orb thing. She decides she wants to look at it again to provide as accurate of a description to Matt as possible. She wants to impress him, like he impressed her at the Q&A. Tia opens the cooler's lid, and the second the lid is fully ajar, Tia's blinded by a green light. Tia tumbles backwards, and afraid of falling, she tries to reach out and grab something, anything, to break the fall. She braces for impact, but stops fidgeting when she realizes she's not falling anymore. She's completely upright, her body tense, her eyes burning, and her environment totally foreign. Tia has never been to a rainforest before, though if she was to ever go to one, she imagines it would look identical to her current surroundings. I'm not an airy anymore, Tia thinks, trying to lighten the intense fear she feels. Everything around her is a lush green color, the air moist with a heavy dew, and loud insects can be heard in every direction. She doesn't know what to do. If this is another attempt to tell me I need to end my own life, I'll just lie and say, got it. Whatever delusion I'm experiencing can't be permanent. Just as Tia starts feeling better about her current unusual circumstance, very noisy rustling of the trees can be heard, and seen, off to her left side. Tia does her best to remain calm, backing up one foot at a time so her eyes remain locked on the area with all the movement and noise. As the rustling gets louder, the movement becomes more menacing, and Tia's head hits something behind her. Ow! Tia feels for what she hit her head on, assuming she backed into a tree. That's weird, it feels like. She turns around and discovers she hit her head on glass. Or maybe it's plastic? Whatever it is, it's all over. There is no space left to run, she realizes. 
the sound and movement gaining on her with each passing moment. Terrified, she tries to punch the glass, but that doesn't do anything other than cause her pain. She kicks it with everything she's got, but again, nothing. This glass is all around her. Oh my god, I'm trapped. As Rio pulls into Hugh's driveway, she notices his car is gone. He probably had to get it repaired, she thinks, the number of songs practically unbearable as they flood her mind and nearly escape her lips. Okay, without his car in the driveway, there's no other way to know Hugh's home unless I knock. So let's expect the worst and hope for the best. If he's not here, I gotta call all three of our local hospitals. And then if he's not in any of those, maybe the jails? Does Erie have more than one jail? Rio contemplates all the possibilities as she hesitantly, but anxiously, knocks on the back door. Rio is certain she hears movement inside, and within several seconds, a very disheveled-looking Hugh answers the door. Hugh's vibrant blue eyes go wide when he sees Rio, clearly surprised. Rose, what are you doing here? Now it's Rio's turn to be surprised. What am I doing here? Hugh? I've been calling and leaving you messages. You haven't responded. I was worried something happened. You said you'd meet me at jail, or the jail. I really don't know, but you never came, and I've been trying to contact you. Rio's expression softens when she really gets a good look at him. His usual dreamy blue eyes are rather bloodshot and pink. His midnight shadow that he typically rocks to perfection is overgrown and straggly. His gray's more prominent now than Rio has ever noticed before. Even his everyday grimace looks forlorn. Hugh, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, Rose. I need to be alone right now. We can talk another time. Hugh shuts the door in Rio's face. Rio feels sorry for Hugh, but at this precise moment, she's pissed. Rio knocks loudly this time, anger and confusion getting the best of her. Hugh, come on! What's going on? Can I please come in? There is silence, so Rio knocks loudly again. I'm not leaving until you let me in. I have nowhere to be, so I can wait all day. Rio hears Hugh quickly unlock the door. He swings it open, stands off to the side to let Rio enter, then slams it shut again once she's inside. What do you want, Rose? Rio shakes her head. What do I want? How about first, I want you to stop having an attitude with me. You said you'd meet me down at the station. You never showed up, and I've been terrified that something bad happened to you since you haven't been answering my calls or texts. Then right before I end up in jail, you tell me that you've been arrested before. I'd love to know what that's all about. I went to the store, and you weren't there, so I came here. And even though I'm super pissed about you slamming the door in my face after what almost happened between us, I'm still just happy to see you and know that you're okay. And even if you're not okay, I'm glad you're alive. Rio rushes towards Hugh and gives him an affectionate hug. He definitely didn't see it coming, and for a brief moment he tries to step away, but he quickly returns the embrace. Rio holds him tight. She can detect a heavy body odor coming from him, but it doesn't bother her in the least. 
His scent makes her worried for him, and she wonders what's been going on. But against his body, she finds a kind of peace she can't describe in words. This peace she feels is quickly broken, though, when she feels Hugh shake. She continues to hold on to him, his embrace on her tightening, as she realizes he's crying. Still clutched together, Rio doesn't say anything. She lets him get whatever he needs to get out. She pushes herself against him a little tighter as his shakiness gets worse. They hold on to each other for a while longer before Hugh lets go. He turns away from Rio, as if he's afraid of her seeing him like this. Rose, I think it'd be best if you left now. Hugh, I understand if that's what you want, and I will. I will give you the space you need. But I'm worried about you. You're clearly upset about something. Please, what's wrong? Maybe I can help you. Hugh shakes his head. There's nothing you can do except go. Hugh moves to grab a tissue from the tissue box that's resting on his couch right next to a large blanket. Huh, looks like he slept on the couch, Rio thinks, and it pains her to see Hugh so upset. I'll go, but why can't you tell me what's wrong? I thought, I don't know, I thought we were close. You told me only a few days ago that if I ever needed you, if I ever needed to talk, that you were here for me. And that goes both ways. I'm always here for you, Hugh. I, I really care about you. Hugh turns around to face Rio, his eyes watery and even pinker than before, his cheeks puffy. Well, you need to stop caring. Do you understand? He replies coldly. Rio feels like he just slapped her in the face. What? Rose, whatever happened between us is over. I'm your boss. This relationship could never work out. I'm too old for you, anyway. Do you understand now? Rio blinks hard in an attempt to ward off the tears she can feel brewing quickly. No. No, Hugh. I don't understand. Last night, we almost had sex. You told me at the store you couldn't wait for the day to be over. The second we pulled up here, you... Rio's chest tightens, her heart heavy. You know what happened. Everything was fine before the car crash. Hugh takes a few steps towards Rio. He tries to maintain his composure, but several tears escape down the sides of his face. No, Rose. Everything was not fine. I'm not the man you think I am. Hugh's blue eyes turn red. His teeth get pointy. His expression serious and his breath heavy. Rio can still see the sadness clear as day. I don't know what you are, but Hugh... I don't care. I- Stop! You should care, Rose. You should date someone who deserves you. Someone closer to your age. Rio shakes her head. I like you, Hugh. I like you so much. No. You like the idea of me. How can you say that? And what are you even talking about anyway? Oh, think about it, Rose! He yells, getting right into her face. His breath hot against her. Rio starts to back up, her heart pounding rapidly. We've been on what? One date? Or I guess two, if you count the time I asked you to stay the night. And what happened? I get you into hot water with that fuck Tony, and then the next time, you get taken away in a cop car. Do you think that's good? Do you think that's normal? He shouts, backing Rio into the corner of his dining room. It's... it's been a bad week. 
Rio replies meekly, her eyes begging Hugh to stop this. Hugh laughs at this remark. Not a genuine laugh, but more of a mean-spirited, are-you-serious type of laugh. Rose, I need to know you're listening. Are you listening? Reluctantly, Rio nods. Hugh carefully takes his right hand and caresses it over Rio's cheek. He leans in, getting so close to her ear that she feels his breath in her eardrum as he whispers, It's over between us. I don't want to be with you. You're my employee, nothing more and nothing less. Now tell me, do you understand? Shaking, Rio slowly goes to nod again, but he slams his left hand against the wall next to her, making her cry out, Say it! (laughs) I understand. The second Hugh moves away from her, Rio falls to the floor, the shock and pain of it all devastating as she bawls uncontrollably. Hugh goes into the kitchen. He picks up a bottle of whiskey that's already half gone and he takes at least four big swigs. His back facing her, he grinds his teeth in agony, fighting back his own tears. As Rio's cries intensify, he chokes down what's left of the whiskey. Slightly slurry, he says, Trust me, Rose. This is for the best. I'm not good for you. He disappears in the basement for a minute before emerging with another unopened bottle of whiskey. Let yourself out when you're ready, he says coldly, as he fumbles around his kitchen and struggles to open the bottle. Rio scrambles to get up, needing to get as far away from Hugh as possible. She grabs Anita's keys and slams Hugh's door shut as hard as she can behind her. Bit by bit, she makes her way to Anita's car. Once inside, she starts to scream as the sobs continue to pour out of her. The emotions are so raw and unnerving, she can't remember a time when she felt this heartbroken. But she didn't want Hugh to know that. She didn't want to give him any more satisfaction than she felt she already did. Rio zooms off to get home, needing so badly to talk to Anita. On the very short ride home, Rio begins to contemplate Hell's offer. Saturday night, Abigail and the man who hit Hugh's car sit in the first pew of the Church of Paul, their eyes staring up at Father Paul adoringly as Father Paul finishes his prayer on the church's altar. Father Paul whimsfully walks over to the eager two, his hands together, his eyes bright. My, my, what gifts the two of you have. Abigail, Adam, there is no doubt in my mind that you will be rewarded by the Heavenly Father for your commitment to the cause. Thank you, Father, Abigail replies. Adam, the man who Rio and Hugh encountered the night before, also says, Thank you, Father Paul. I will serve you now and forever. A giant grin plastered on his face. Father Paul implores, Please, tell me the stories again. Tell me how the heathens are being punished and judged for their sins. Adam starts to talk. Well, I was trying to- But Abigail immediately talks over him, which makes Adam pout as Father Paul's attention is fully directed at her. In a flash, all the candles lit in the church go out, the lights flicker, 
and the double doors at the front entrance of the church blast open. Nathaniel storms in, his pupils dilated and his nostrils flaring. His mouth is open, looking as though he's ready to howl, and there is a visible darkness that brings a shadow over the entire inside of the church, the giant cross at the front tilting slightly. Abigail, Adam, and Father Paul all shiver, the church suddenly freezing on this warm summer night. Abigail and Adam stand up to turn and look at who or what is causing all this commotion, and they are both surprised to see the little boy. Father Paul gets on his knees as Nathaniel approaches, and seeing Father Paul do this, Abigail follows suit, then Adam right after her. Nathaniel, praise be! Abigail, Adam, this is the Holy One I've been telling you about. He is our guide in the mission we've been tasked with. He is the reason we are able to band together against the heathens and save the world from their sin. To what do we owe this divine pleasure? Your divine stupidity! Do you idiots realize that Miss Johnson and Miss Smith were both arrested on the same night? Father Paul's expression turns grim, his eyes growing wide in fear. He starts to get up from his kneeling position. Stay right where you are, Nathaniel commands. Father Paul's demeanor shrinks. My God, did we fail you? Have we destroyed our chances to save humanity? Nathaniel stomps right up to where Father Paul is kneeling. Lay out your dominant hand. Father Paul looks up at the child. Now! Nathaniel bellows. Father Paul puts his left hand out. Lay it flat. Father Paul does as he's told. With a big smirk, Nathaniel crunches down on Father Paul's index finger, the sound causing Abigail to jump in surprise and making Adam's stomach churn. Do you have any idea how lucky we are that they did not end up in the same jail together, let alone the same cell? Father Paul's pain is intense. He can't fathom how such a small being can feel like the weight of a 300-pound man on his one finger. We are so fortunate, truly blessed, Father Paul manages to say. Yeah, and you know why that is? Because I had to get involved. I had to do damage control for your reckless behaviors. The shoplifting accusation was well-timed. I give you that. But the swerving to hit a deer story is reprehensible. If I wasn't in a weakened state from having to intervene, I would cast you into the eternal flame! Adam looks down, rocking back and forth. I'm very sorry. I was only trying to make her life miserable by hurting her boss. You know, <laughs> the one who lacks her and all. Nathaniel smiles. The candles all become lit once more, and the flickering lights cease. Even the air starts to feel warmer. Father Paul, Adam, and Abigail all carefully look up from their kneeling positions to figure out why things are returning to normal. When they see Nathaniel's toothy grin, they feel slightly uneasy, but each one of them forces a big smile to match the current mood. As stupid as your actions have been, the consequences are turning out far better than I could have imagined. Nathaniel steps off of Father Paul's finger. He motions for the three of them to stand up, which they do. Father Paul's finger throbs in pain. 
I want you to remember that pain next time you decide to be so careless. Father Paul nods. Yes, I will remember now and always. Me too, Abigail replies. Then Adam follows up with, Yeah. Nathaniel scowls at the two of them, his attention focused on Father Paul. Thanks to my quick thinking and swift action, I don't think we have to worry about either of them anytime soon. Titiana is on her own now, with the drug addict running out on her, and our poor little Rose is heartbroken. Far better results than anticipated. You three may be worthy of the mission after all. Father Paul is eager to be in the best of graces. Please, tell us how we can continue to be your soldiers. Let us prove our stupidity will not stand in the way ever again. Nathaniel gives his words a thought before responding. At this present time, focus on Kiki. She's the weakest link, yet the strongest ally Titiana has. She's out of the picture for right now, but I imagine that won't last. She has nowhere else to go. I also find her annoying. What about Rose's boss? The guy with the anger problem. Nathaniel's beady little eyes light up with glee. Leave Hugh Kirby to me. Tia and Rio Attempt to Save Themselves and the World is written, created, and produced by Callie Oberlander. Tia is performed by Julie McCormick. Adam is performed by John S. Quinfuerta. Rio and all other voices are performed by Callie Oberlander. All sound design, editing, and music are by Eric Brown. My continuity checkers, readers, and biggest supporters are Jules Johnson, Hilary Roback, and Hugh Philpot. And if you've made it this far, please remember that even in the darkest times, there is always hope. This is Mike, the GM of the Dresden Files RPG podcast, Green Mountain Mysteries. We're a comedic actual play podcast about a Midwestern monster hunter. So Albion's kind of a, uh, a monster hunting type. You can't be a warlock, that's illegal. A psychic medium. Desdemona Brown. Sometimes Jack helps me, no, that's bad. <laughs> a criminal changeling. Rosetta Common. Monsters aren't real idiots because I'm going to make this monster not real with my magic powers. And a charismatic butt doctor. Sylvester Coopersmith. Hey, quick question, buddy, if that's cool with you. What the fuck is your deal with me? Trying to save the world from magical mayhem, using the backdrop of Burlington, Vermont in all of its splendor. What appears to be Champ, the Lake Champlain sea monster. (sighs) (laughs) Catch Green Mountain Mysteries every other Wednesday on the Pocket Podcast Network. Pocket Podcast Network. Quality programming right to your pocket.